Good morning. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Welcome in on a Tuesday morning. Today is a game day. BYU playing UCF in Boca Raton in the Boca Raton Bowl. We had uh, Matt Michelle on, and we're going to get to him a little later in this hour. He's a national college football writer for the Orlando Sentinel. Covers UCF as well. And uh, first question I asked him was, uh, you know, you look at the scores. They play UCF plays a lot of high scoring games. I mean, they lost to Memphis fifty to forty nine. They lost to Cincinnati thirty six thirty three. But they played a lot of games that were forty something to twenty something, fifty something to thirty something. And I think is the offense that good, and is the defense that bad? And it took a while to get to the answer because he talked a lot about the offense for a while. But the answer is yes, yes, that's true. The offense is that good. The defense is that bad. Now, the defense has been a work in progress. Are they getting a little better? They had a lot of guys opt out. They lost a lot of guys. So like the Utes, really, uh, they had to go young, maybe for different reasons. But in the end, it was the same thing. They they were young. And so mistakes were made. So watching this game tonight, uh, you know, first team to 35, first team to 40 wins this game. This just doesn't – no part of this game has 24-17 written all over it not that's not how this is it may be 24 17 at some point but that that should be in the second quarter so we'll hear more from matt about the uh the running back they are going to be ucf is going to be without um the best wide receiver who's got about 2,000 yards receiving over the last two years a little over a thousand last year a little under this year um but they got a deep receiving course so they they can probably plug some other guys in and BYU's defense will be tested BYU's offense should have a really really good game they, there, there are a lot of big plays to be made. And, of course, as always in 2020, all of this is contingent on finding out who's actually playing because there could be surprises at any moment. Somebody could be penciled in to play at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they could be off the board. And kickoff is tonight at 5. So that's the big game tonight. That's the thing we are, uh, that's the thing we are watching for tonight, and we'll hear from, uh, we'll hear from Matt coming up. Uh, also, we've got uh, the NBA starting night, a couple of national TV games, and the full schedule tomorrow with the Jazz playing in Portland tomorrow night. And we get going. And once we get going, I mean, hold your breath, 37 games in 71 days. That's the portion of the schedule they've announced so far. They're calling it the first half of the schedule. Uh, it's not quite half, but it's good enough. 37 of the 72 games, I guess 36 would be half. But you get the point. And then they're going to, I assume sometime in February, they will announce the rest of the schedule. And they may be trying to make up games that didn't get played early in the season. Uh, Inevitably, as we're seeing with college basketball, uh, there are going to be games postponed. There are going to be games canceled. Uh, The question is, you know, how many? We saw it in baseball that a lot of teams were able to stay pretty healthy and keep playing. And a couple teams, the Cardinals and the Marlins, got hit really hard and missed games. And the Marlins ultimately played 10 fewer games than everybody else. Um, But in the middle of a pandemic, you just – you play what you can. So we've already heard from uh, Quinn Snyder. He was talking – I was on a media call with him this weekend, and he was talking about – or last weekend. And he was talking about um, uh, we got to be adaptable. Uh, depending on where they go, they may not be able to shoot around. They may not even be able to have team meetings. He's saying, you know, you're in California, and depending on some of the restrictions there, uh, we may just have to do Zoom meetings instead of a shoot-around, have a Zoom meeting and go over film that way and go over some of the concepts that are going to be really important in the game. So be adaptable. And uh, it's a good thing that we we like the Jazz depth because you got to figure the depth is going to be tested this year. I mean, without question, the depth is going to be tested. 
All right, DJ and PK, the Road Home Mediathon continues. This is something we have been uh, taking part in for years, along with several other radio stations. TV stations have gotten involved. The Road Home has two homeless facilities. Uh, they've got their family center, which is um, in Midvale. And then they've got the Men's Resource Center in South Salt Lake. And raising funds for them, they house about 750 people in a night. There's about 2,000 homeless people. There are a couple other providers. And if you're downtown Salt Lake, you know, driving around, uh, there's, you know, people camping out. Um, it's been a big issue. So if you can help the road home, uh, house as many people as, co- as possible, and not just house them, but help these people end homelessness and, uh, and get back to self-sufficiency. Um, there's uh, <clears throat> a lot of work to be done navigating, finding, and uh, securing housing. Some of these uh, folks are veterans, and there's stuff available to them through the VA, but they haven't been able to negotiate the system. So you can help. You can make a donation right now. You can donate on the phone, 801-819-7300. 801-819-7300. You can also go online to theroadhome.org and donate online at theroadhome.org. Now, in addition to any money, cash is king, uh, there are plenty of other things they can use help with. If you have a an extra coat, uh, that would make a difference. They need socks. They need underwear. They need masks. Homemade masks, store-bought masks, uh, both will work. Um, coats, blankets, uh, you know, people are cold this time of year. So anything you can do, you can stop by the uh, Men's Resource Center and drop it off 3380 South, 1000 West. It's uh, 1000 West, 3380 South in South Salt Lake, and uh, you can make a donation there. The Road Home always striving to have the greatest impact on the people they serve, researching, analyzing, finding new opportunities to serve the community, community, adapt, and bring best practices here. If somebody is doing something great in Las Vegas or in Nashville or in Boston or New York or Seattle or Portland, wherever, uh, you know, sharing those best practices, bringing those things home, the Road Home, always looking to do that. So anything you can do. Uh, oh, one other thing they need. They need diapers. Uh, if you want to do- drop off some diapers at the Men's Resource Center, 3380 South, 1000 West, they will get those to the family shelter in Midvale, and they can use them there. And uh, disinfectant cleaning products, face masks, anything you can help to do with the, uh, the pandemic would be great. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We are going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, a little Utah football with uh, Josh Newman, you beat writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. And then we'll have a little Cougar football with Matt Merchell, national college football writer for the Orlando Sentinel. He covers UCF. He's coming up after Josh right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Good morning. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. The Road Home Mediathon continues. This hour, the goal is to reach 10 donors and your donation will be matched by the John M. Huntsman Family Foundation. So whatever you give right now will be doubled. You can pick up the phone right now and call. Uh, you can donate online. If you want to go online, it's at theroadhome.org, theroadhome.org. If you want to call, the number is 801-819-7300, 801-819-7300, and the Huntsman Family Foundation will match your donation and help some of the most vulnerable here in Utah, our homeless population. All right, it's time to hear college football now. Talking a little college football with Josh Newman. He's the beat writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. He joined us yesterday. So when he says he knows the date, you're going to say, dude, you don't know the date. Well, he did. He was right then. But for you you early rising U fans, want to let you hear his takes on the transferring quarterbacks, the progress made this season, what the quarterback position will look like next year, 
and the state of the Pac-12 and Pac-12 conference management. All right, here's Josh Newman with PK and I. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Time to welcome in Josh Newman, Utah Utes beat writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. Josh, good morning. Good morning, boys. How are you? Doing well. Not to embarrass you right out of the gate, Josh, but we were talking about you last week. I don't know if you heard about that. I didn't. Why don't you fill me in? (laughs) Uh, We both agreed you were doing a really good job on the Utes beat, so it's not always (laughs) the easiest thing in the world to step into a new market and get a feel for what's going on. But uh, the thing that I noticed right away is your questions are really good when we're on those Zoom calls. They're right on point. They're frequently stuff I'm thinking I want to ask, and then you ask it. And, of course, there's no better way to be labeled, you know, as smart. It's just we, we find people who agree with us and think the way we do. That person really gets it because <laughs> that's what I was thinking. So either you're really good or we're both completely lost, but we seem to be on the same page a lot. No, you guys are not completely lost. And, listen, genuinely, I do appreciate those kind words. Uh, look, I'm an outsider coming from the East Coast. I've tried to, you know, ingratiate myself in the community, in the media scene, uh, I've tried to, you know, come in headfirst on this beat. And look, the pandemic hasn't made our job what we do for a living. The pandemic has made it, you know, quite difficult, right? You know, without the face-to-face stuff, everything's on Zoom. It's limited access. So, you know, we're all just trying to do our best every day. Yeah. And the only thing I didn't really like about Josh is that he didn't grade the pie at the Star Tavern in Orange, New Jersey, high enough. Now, pie, people will think oh. apple, blueberry. No, we're not talking apple, but we're talking pizza. Star Tavern. You must have done your homework. No, I did not I did not grade Star Tavern super high. Look, it might have been the night. It might have been who was in the kitchen. I understand that Star Tavern <laughs> is, you know, an institution. Uh, and if I ever live to get back to the East Coast, I, I, I will give it a, a second shot. <laughs> It's an institution in my it. family, that's for sure. Still is. Many, many, fam- many, many family members go to that place. So I remember talking to you about it. But, uh, you know, we're talking about the Utes, and obviously their season has concluded. And I think that they got just about everything they needed to get accomplished this season in terms of valuation, except the Cam Rising thing. I think that was a bummer. But other than that, I'm generally pleased. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think they did get everything – accomplished mostly um look i i went back and forth between you know what is this season obviously look you're playing the games and they count and the film is out there so you want to perform well and the goal you know the end game every week is to prepare and win a football game no matter if it's in this weird pandemic or not that's one thing but the other thing as you alluded to you're evaluating you're thinking down the road you're trying to decide how good you can be later, uh, how good some of these young kids can be later, uh, what you need to do uh, in terms of recruiting or the transfer portal or whatever have you. And, yeah, you know, good, bad, or otherwise, you know, they got five games in, and I think they have a pretty, you know, a pretty fair idea of what they're looking at down the road. And, uh, you know, the big picture kind of knee-jerk reaction on, on Saturday, at least for me, in the wake of the season ending, I think there's a lot of reason to be very optimistic on both sides of the ball about what they have and what they can be moving forward. Now, look, things happen. Kids transfer, kids leave. There's a couple of NFL draft decisions probably still to be made. Uh, There's a bunch of seniors that need to decide what they're going to do because they have the option to come back for one more year. But 
you know, long story short, all told, I think there's plenty of reason to be very optimistic about the future. Obviously, the Utes have just gotten a couple of uh, quarterback transfers here. What do you know about them? Because that seems to be the massive missing piece. The defense came along, looked good. The second half of that Washington State game, they were dominant. Obviously, the running game is there. Ty Jordan is putting up huge numbers, and not just numbers, but looking good doing it. It passes the eye test. So as it so often does with the Utes, it comes back to quarterback. What do you know about these guys? Yeah, so – Quinton Jackson, who was, a, who was a true freshman this year at Texas, he, he committed late Saturday night. And on the surface, I thought that was, I thought that, you know, that was really good. Uh, he, he comes with a very big high school pedigree from the state of Texas, you know, highly, re, highly recruited kid, uh, was coming off knee surgery. So, he, you know, he hasn't taken a snap since, you know, his senior year of high school. Um, that was fine. But after I thought about it a little more, uh, that – kid while talented that kid doesn't add anything for you in terms of experience to the room and i think that's one thing that utah needed was an experienced capable guy in the quarterback room you know to help out a cam rising who doesn't have a lot of experience to help out peter costelli who's going to come in here as a true freshman so that was one thing and then late yesterday afternoon they get a commitment from charlie brewer who was a four-year starter at baylor another kid with a huge high school pedigree from texas went into Baylor, threw for 9,700 yards in four years. That's a big one. You know, that qualifies, in my mind, that's like big game hunting, right? Utah went out looking for a a real experienced quarterback, and they got one in spades. Um, I'm not going to sit here on, you know, December 21st and tell you that Charlie Brewer is going to be the starter when when the 21 season opened on September 2nd, but that's a very experienced, very capable guy in your quarterback room who at a minimum – should should take control of the room and help out some of these young guys, right? Help out Cam Rising, help out Peter Costelli, help out Cooper Justice, who's a, who's going to be a true freshman again next year. So, um, as you said, Utah needed to address their quarterback situation, and they got it done within 24 hours of the season ending. So I think that's a great job by Kyle Whittingham and staff. So the freshman kid coming over, it's it's basically the same thing as a Rising. You go to Texas. You don't play. You don't win the job. You're not sure you're going to get out on the field, so you leave. And, and then basically that was Bentley's situation too. Wasn't sure he was going to play, so he leaves. And I don't want to crack on the kid, but you can see why to an extent why uh, South Carolina went in a different direction. So I'm wondering, the point being, do I really want to base my quarterbacking position on guys who – essentially weren't good enough to get out on the field someplace else. That's why they're leaving. Now, the other kid from Baylor, that's an entirely different situation. Now, that program, from when he first got there to where it is now, we know has undergone all sorts of upheaval. Is that the primary reason why he's leaving, or is there something else there? It's really early there. I, I, I don't know the full story there, right? It, it is a little weird. Everything's a little weird with the pandemic. Um, you know, the kid played four years, so he, he could he could probably go t- to the NFL draft and at least get to the combine and g- and give himself a chance to be a pro. I'll, I'll give it to you. It's a very weird situation. He's going to be a graduate tra- transfer. Uh, everybody gets an extra year of eligibility now because of the pandemic. So I, I'm, I'm curious to see and report and, and kind of hear about, you know, what that backstory is, because he's not a he's not 18 years old. Right. He's 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 22. He's played four 
45 games for a Big 12 school. So I'll be curious to hear that backstory. I think just looking at the numbers, the thing that jumps out at me is his completion percentage isn't quite good enough. The touchdown-interception ratio not only is a little concerning at 2-1, to one, uh, but it doesn't seem to be getting better. And so if I were Cam Rising, yes, I'd want to learn from him because he's played a lot of games, he's thrown a lot of passes, uh, he's thrown a lot of touchdowns, he's thrown a lot of interceptions too. But I also would think there's a way to win the job here. This isn't automatically Charlie Brewer's gig. Uh, you know, that 2-1 to one touchdown ratio, it did get to 3-1 to one, one year, his junior year, but it went right back to 2-1. to one, And that we all know Kyle, that's going to bug Kyle. Yeah, no, that's a fair point, but I don't, I don't, I don't put all my stock into the touchdown to, to uh, INT ratio just because at Baylor it's it's high octane, it's spread. You're throwing the ball all over the place, so yeah, the quarterback is going to throw some picks. I'm not, I'm not super worried about that. Um, to your point, no, I agree with you. I no, Charlie Brewer is not coming in here. The job is not automatically his, and we saw this year what can happen. When there's some assumptions, I think I'm not going to say everybody. I think a lot of people, yeah, kind of assume that you know Bentley came in here with you know 33 starts under his belt. Everybody thought that he would seize the job and you know he would be the guy from day one, which which was not the case. Um, you know, it's a it's a bit of a difficult situation now for Utah. They have the help with you know, again Jackson and Brewer. Rising did win the job this fall, but. Kyle has already said that rising is very likely not going to be available for spring ball. So that's going to take away, you know, reps and experience. And then you get to the point where, okay, it's going to be, um, you know, fall camp come August. If we get a, a normal season, is rising going to be ready for the summer? Even if he is ready for the summer, Brewer will have come in here in January and, you know, worked with Andy Ludwig from January all the way through August. So, it's going to be a little bit of a fascination, not so much in the spring because we kind of see what that is shaking out as with rising out. The real fascination is going to be once we get to August, how the quarterback situation shakes out. So no matter who the quarterback is, I'm going to make an outlandish statement, see if you agree with me, that next season they're going to rely on good defense, decent special teams, and a strong running game. Yes. Yeah, I think that's more than fair. Uh, the defense showed – I, you know, look, I wrote this a few times. I think the defense uh, outperformed any even reasonable expectation that even Kyle had. Even, you know, Kyle during, you know, October when camp started really was, I'm not going to say he wasn't high on this defense, but he was being very realistic that, look, nine, nine defensive starters needed to be replaced, including the entire secondary. So I don't think he had super high hopes for this defense, but the defense played, you know, reasonably well, right? They finished... I think it's number two in the Pac-12 in total defense. Uh, they had the number one rushing defense in the league by you know quite a wide margin. So, yeah, um, very good defense. And you know I don't know that the quarterback needs to be anything other than a game manager. Um, what I will say is, and I'll play devil's advocate here. I'm probably in the minority. Ty Jordan has been tremendous, uh, especially over the last three games. Do you want to give him the entire rushing attack? He is just five foot seven. We don't know how he's going to hold up under a full, you know, twelve game workload. Are we ready to hand the keys to the rushing offense to specifically Ty Jordan? I don't, I don't know that that's a wise plan, but that's why they're making the money they make, and that's why I'm sitting here talking to you. <laughs> well, having said that, uh, yes, he's the guy. 
I mean, he is the guy. He's the number one back. But I am always more comfortable when it's a 70-30-80-20 split. I think there's so many examples across football where when you have a change of pace and the defense is used to seeing one kind of thing and you give them somebody who's you know more of a power back or a better receiver or complementary and you give them every third or fourth possession or, or maybe they're the third down back, I think that usually works out well. Is he the featured back? Absolutely. Do I think he should be carrying 100% of the load? I wasn't comfortable when Zach Moss did, did it. And it worked out, and Zach was great, but even that just – Guys wear down. Guys take hits. Guys get injured. So you need a second guy. And that, look, and that's just the point I'm making. I didn't mean to make it sound like Ty Jordan is not the number one guy. Ty Jordan is absolutely the number one guy. But as you alluded to, you need to find a, a balance. You know, seventy thirty, eighty twenty. Can Makai Bernard really turn into you know a, um, a viable number two guy that can take some of the uh, take some of the work you know off Jordan's shoulders? Um, to that, I will say, like, I will not be surprised if Kyle, you know, goes to the portal for some more running back help. You know, you don't find super quality running backs in the portal every year like you do quarterbacks, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Kyle is still in the market for at least one more running back. So even though I was born and raised in New Jersey, I also grew up second part of my life in Arizona, went to ASU, worked in Los Angeles, so I am a Pac-10 slash 12 guy through and through. And this season has left me thoroughly disgusted with the management of the conference. I mean, I just can't believe how irrelevant they are. And this is my conference, so it pains me to say it. Uh, what, what are your thoughts as far as that goes? Because it seems like they just gross, <clears throat> grossly mismanaged this whole situation all season, put themselves completely on the outside. Um, it's, it's hard. Um, you know, the, the thing specifically with the Pac-12 title game, how that, how that shook out, there, there was no right answer, and there was no easy answer. And in the, in the days leading up to, you know, the Pac-12 title game or even the decision to, to you know, to see who would, who would play in the title game, I just remember thinking that Larry Scott is going to get eviscerated no matter what he does. Um, I've gone back and forth on this, back and forth. I would have gone USC versus Colorado. Those were the those were the two best. If you take away the divisions, Washington couldn't play. Uh, Colorado and USC, you know, that game got canceled. Uh, Oregon was a two-loss second-place team in its own division. In hindsight, that was that was really silly to have Oregon play in the title game. Uh, it should have been USC Colorado. Uh, that would have been the path of least resistance in terms of optics. Not that Larry Scott cares about optics. He's made that clear already. Um, it, you know, it's interesting. Look, as as an East Coast guy, as somebody who, who loves college athletics and, you know, follows everything nationwide, like you, I, I read from afar and, and, and listen from afar for years about the Pac-10, the Pac-12, and, you know, the bad management, you know, and Larry Scott and this. It was really a different deal, though, when I got out here and saw it firsthand and started covering the league, um, the mismanagement is mind-blowing. The things that go, you know, the things that go on in the league office and the decisions made, not only that, the way that they present these things. Every time Larry Scott opens his mouth, he gets crushed by the media. Every single time. And it's just, it's not even funny anymore. It's more sad than funny to me. 
You know, the, there are many things to criticize, but for a league where everybody needs more money, I think the thing that PNK and I always come back to is you could at least move the, te- the TV network out of the city. You know, they're not using a backdrop of, of San Francisco for their anchor desk. Why people in editing suites are in the most expensive real estate on the West Coast makes <laughs> no sense to us. Honestly, the TV network, I've always felt like, should be in an anonymous box somewhere near the Salt Lake Airport. It's honestly where Channel 2 was when I got hired. We're downtown now. Uh, but you can fly in and out. It's cheap. You could pay people who work at the network less because they'd spend so much less on real estate. you got to pay people so much money because they got to live in the Bay Area. It's crazy. And if you want to keep the conference office there so that you can meet with Google, and if that's going to pay off one day, I guess so. But what is the TV network doing there? You're just blowing a large amount of money. And I have never heard a good explanation for that. Not anything even – why Bob back in Edit Suite 3 is in the San Francisco real estate market just blows my mind. No, it, you're right. San Francisco is an incredibly expensive city. Um, I agree with you. If you want to keep the conference office there and you know, be you know, near the tech people, you think that's going to pay off on the next media rights go around, that's fine. Um, you know, the network, the editing suites, the people that are, are trying to – you know, scratch out a living doing those things. There's no need for those people to be, you know, having to live in San Francisco or San Francisco proper, the area. And again, um, gross mismanagement on the people in charge. I, I will say this, just having having built relationships and talking to people, I don't expect Larry Scott to be negotiating the next media rights deal. That I, I don't see that happening at all. Well, Josh, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on. Uh, good work. We haven't talked much basketball. We can have you talk, uh, have you back to talk basketball uh, going forward when it gets ramped up and rolling. If, if indeed it gets ramped up and rolling, it may just be stop and go all year. Hopefully not. Anytime. You guys have a great holiday. I appreciate it. Josh Newman, Utah Utes beat writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. Join us right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. There's Josh Newman with PKNI. He is a Ute beat writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. Hey, reminder, the Utah uh, Road Home, the Road Home, the Mediathon continues right now. And if you want to donate, pick up the phone, 801-819-7300. All the donations right now are being matched by the Huntsman Family Foundation, 801-819-7300, or donate online at theroadhome.org, theroadhome.org. Coming up next, we are going to talk football, BYU football, BYU and UCF tonight in the Boca Raton Bowl. Matt Merchel, National College Football Writer for the Orlando Sentinel, coming up next. DJ PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Time to bring in Matt Marshall, National College Football Writer for the Orlando Sentinel. He covers UCF as well. UCF and BYU getting ready to meet in the Boca Raton Bowl. Matt, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Good. You're right there watching UCF, and we all became aware of them as they put together, uh, what was it, a 25-game win streak, and it, it was an awesome run. And they're still pretty good. They're 6-3. and three. Uh, but when I look at their scores, and I'm not watching them, you know, that close, but when I look at their scores, they give up 34 points or more five times, and yet the offense is just putting up 44 points, 51 points, 49 points. Is the offense really that good? Is the defense really that bad? 
<laughs> well, the offense is really that good. I can, I can attest to that. I mean, listen, this is a team that has done, at least last three or four years, has really been outstanding when it comes to this fast-paced, explosive offense. They like to take advantage of big plays. They're not, you know, afraid to take the ball deep down the field. Um, they, you know, have talented skill position players at wide receiver, you know, talented running backs. They love to mix things up offensively. Um, they're a team that, like, you know, averages over, you know, more than 40 points a game over the last, you know, couple seasons. And, and you know, they, they like to do that and they like to take advantage of that. I think the defense at times has had issues, you know, definitely uh, in the last couple seasons playing on some explosive teams. Uh, some of that could be because of the fact that because UCF's offense is so explosive, they're on the field a lot more than they're probably most uh, defenses are, are on as well. And so this team has had has had trouble at times, especially in second half of games, particularly this year. And I think that's something that something they've been trying to work on and focus on over the last couple of weeks. Marlon Robinson and Jalen, or Marvin Williams, I should say, and Jalen Robinson, two big time, at least statistically, receivers. They're not necessarily that big physically. But they are a dangerous combo. I would assume you think BYU is going to have their hands full with them. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, you know, when, when you look at UCF, you know, Jalen Robinson, for one, is kind of a guy who was a transfer from Oklahoma, a guy that, you know, we really weren't sure what he was going to be like this year and has really came on to be an explosive type player. He's, he's a big, big play player, averages more than 18 yards a carry. Um, definitely putting together a stellar season. Now, Marlon Williams will be playing in this game. He, he's opted out. He's decided to go to the NFL. Um, he had a great season, 71 catches for over 1,000 yards. He was kind of their go-to guy. He stepped in and replaced Gabe Davis, who ended up going to the NFL and playing for the Buffalo Bills. So they had an explosive you know, one-two punch. But this team is, is lined up at receiver. I mean, you've got Robinson, you got Jacob Harris, Trey Nixon, who was hurt for most of the year. Uh, he's coming back. Um, this group is, is really, you know, talented, tall, lengthy type guys, guys that are willing to, to take advantage of secondaries. Um, and I, I think they're, they're, they continue to add these kind of players. And I think it's going to be something that will be fun to watch over the next couple of years. So is Jacob Harris the guy to watch then? His stats, you know, on 26 catches, he's just catching two or three balls a game. But then you see it's 18 yards a catch, and he's got seven touchdowns off his 26 catches. So he's obviously really good in the red zone. Yeah, he's really good. He's a tall guy, too. Here's a guy, by the way, who didn't really – he played a little football but then wanted to play soccer and played soccer for a while and, and finally made the switch back to football. So he's kind of been late in life, kind of got back into this football thing, and he's really taken advantage of his size. He was outstanding in their final game against USF. He had three touchdown catches. I think another guy to watch is definitely Ryan O'Keefe. Ryan O'Keefe's one of the faster guys on this team. He's a Texas product. Uh, he you know, He's a guy that they love to take advantage of. And Nixon, like I mentioned, who was – you know, really was outstanding last year. Um, you know, he was hurt. He, he uh, had dislocated collarbone in the opener against Georgia Tech. He's been back over the last couple of weeks. I expect him to pick up a bigger role as well. And it's not to mention just these guys. They've also got a, a good tight end in Jake Hescott and a couple of running backs that they like to use. So there's so many weapons for Dylan Gabriel at quarterback to take advantage of. That's why the offense is running as smoothly as it has. Tell us about Gabriel. We understand he's from the islands, and people from the islands don't like BYU. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, it's, we, we, I got a chance to talk with uh, with Dylan's family. Uh, you know, uh, Garrett Gabriel, if you recall, was a, a quarterback at Hawaii uh, years ago and, and played against BYU several times. And when Dylan was growing up, you know, they would put on these videotapes, you know, of, of his dad's performances against BYU. And you know, I think that's where he learned to kind of have that kind of sort of rivalry look towards BYU. So 
when it was announced that they were going to that UCF was going to be facing BYU this week, um, you know, I think Dylan kind of laughed because you know he knew this is kind of something they've been talking about for years. You know, never thought he'd have an opportunity, but but here he is now. And uh, you know, Dylan's had an outstanding first two seasons here at UCF. I mean, he took over the starting job basically uh, in Game Two last year, and he's really been explosive. He's really kind of developed into this offense uh, this year. He's been able to to, to utilize, uh, like I mentioned, all these skilled position players. He's got great touch. Um, you know, he can scramble out of the pocket. He's starting to use his legs a lot more than he did maybe the first half of last season. Um, he's able to provide them with much more experience, you know, in the pocket. Um, and I think some of that, too, also comes from the fact that he's been, you know, his best friend is Mackenzie Milton, you know, and Mackenzie Milton, you know, kind of helped groom him over the last couple of years while he was dealing with his own injury rehab. So I think all in all, that's helped Dylan kind of develop into an outstanding quarterback. You mentioned the running backs in passing, Greg McRae, Otis Anser, Otis Anderson, and Bentavious Thompson. None of them have 700 yards rushing, but they all have at least 300 yards rushing. The thing that caught my eye is they're all over five yards per carry, and they kind of split up 18 touchdowns among them. This, is, uh, this is, seems like classic running back by committee. Are they all healthy? Are they all opting into the game? Do they actually have all three guys at their disposal? Yeah, as far as we know, yeah, they're all opting. We asked Josh Heifel the other day if anyone was going to opt out, and he, he said that at this point, you know, it looked like they'd be up full speed to go. Yeah, this is an, a, a great running back you know, group. You know, this is I think what helps them a lot is this is a group that because of the fact that UCF likes to push the ball, likes to go uh, deep, you know, I think that kind of opens up the middle and allows the, the running back to take advantage of the situation. Greg McRae is really only two years removed from having a 1,000-yard season. Otis Anderson – uh, was, uh, for a while there, was used as a slot you know, receiver at times. Ventavious Thompson is a big back, a guy they kind of used to grind out things. Like you mentioned, these guys all can, can take advantage of the thing. And what's amazing is most people think UCF's offense is just throwing the football, but they really do like to run the football. They average over 200 yards a game. Um, you know, They really enjoy using that running game to kind of mix things up a little bit as well. They've got lots of speed in that, in that backfield as well. They've got a couple of younger guys and Johnny Richardson and Demarius Good who are super fast as well. And I think, again, that's what Josh Heupel and his staff have done, is they continue to recruit these speedsters and they continue to add them into this offense. that has been really starting to pay off when you look at the scoreboard. So reading up on uh, UCF, defensive line coach Shane Berman says uh, calls Zach Wilson as good a quarterback as they've seen this year. And they face some good ones, probably uh, Cincinnati's and then Memphis's White comes to mind. And those guys had success against UCF. So what can I assume that BYU is going to have a fair amount of success moving the ball? Well, I, I, yeah, I think what's going to happen is, you know, for, for UCF defensively, what they have to do and what, where they found their success on defense is they've got to be aggressive up front. They've got to be able to get pressure on the quarterback. When they've been able to get pressure on the quarterback and kind of take them out of the rhythm, then that's where they've had their success. We've seen that even in the Cincinnati loss, you know, early on in the first half, they were able to get to, you know, to, uh, to Ritter to kind of make him uncomfortable. They slowed down the running game. They kind of got everyone, you know, really kind of out of their offensive set. Where they struggle is when they can't get that pressure, when, when, they can, when quarterbacks can take advantage, if the pocket starts to break down, if they can run out of the pocket, if they can make things happen with their legs. That's when all of a sudden where they struggle a little bit. Let's not forget UCF has two freshmen, two freshmen playing at cornerback this season, um, and, and Corey Thornton. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that's a guy that, you know, teams have tried to take advantage of because he's a true freshman. They've had to go with some younger guys at different spots. They had 10 guys opt out before the season started. 
because of the COVID situation. They lost uh, a couple starters, four starters, because of some off-the-field issues back in October. Um, so there's a lot of younger guys that have had to kind of step in and take on some roles and kind of grow as, as the season has gone on. So I think in, in regards, that's why some of the issues have happened defensively because, again, you're getting freshmen and sophomores, guys who maybe didn't get a lot of snaps for the last season or so, getting opportunities to play, and they're just really trying to grow into that role. And I think that's what is the, the challenge is going to be with, with a guy like Wilson is making sure he doesn't get too much out of the pocket and take advantage of things. Matt Michelle joining us, National College football writer for the Orlando Sentinel, covers UCF as well. I'm curious, uh, you know, the reputation is UCF has a ton of speed. Does that translate into big plays on special teams and big returns? You know, they, used, they have in the past. You know, last this past season, not so much so. I, I think you know, we haven't had opportunities to see that kind of – to go up there and see that speed. Otis Anderson, as I mentioned, who was not only the running back and, and, and you know, slot receiver – also played a little bit, you know, at kick returns. Johnny Richardson, who I mentioned, also is on kick returns. We haven't seen those opportunities to have those kind of big play, uh, you know, uh, special teams with kickoff returns. Um, I know they've been itching to do so because, you know, they, again, they've had that speed. Um, a lot of teams learn quickly not to maybe kick to some of these guys or at least give them opportunities to do that. Um, and I think, too, you know, when you're up big, you know, uh, in some of these games, they just haven't taken advantage of the opportunities. So um, I think they would love to have that shot. But again, this team is so loaded with speed, they try to put those guys out there in those special team situations. Do you think the AAC would be interested in having BYU join? Yeah, that's a good question. I think at some point, because of the situation, you know, because of losing UConn, um, I think that the talk of that, you know, I, I, when I wrote a couple, you know, a year ago uh, when UConn left, that, you know, this would be an opportunity maybe to get a team like BYU. They're bringing them in there. I think it would obviously bring a lot of national cachet, um, something the American has been trying to do. Uh, you know, they're, they're, when you look at college football right now, the AAC is, is clearly the best, you know, of the group of five schools. And they want to be, you know, included in that kind of power five discussion. Uh, so if you add a, a school like BYU, you might be able to do that, and especially what BYU has been able to do with, its, you know, with football program uh, historically has done well. I, I think that would be a huge addition to them. Now, I'm not sure at some point I know Michael Resco, the commissioner of the American, has mentioned, you know, they've, they've had little they've had talks here or there. I'm not sure what route he wants to go. I mean, I think BYU is definitely going to be on that list if I was making some phone calls. Um, I know Boise State was there at one point as, as well, but um, it would be interesting. And I think if you think about, you know, the, the teams that are playing now, you think about the Cincinnati and the Memphis and the UCF. Um, I, I think it would be a huge addition to bring an, another brand name like BYU in there as well. And, and I'm, I'm sure, even in a way, BYU would be interested in that just with the, with the national exposure and the tie-ins that, that the, the conference is starting to develop over the last couple of years. All of this sounds good, but if we step back and I just let my cynical brain wander, I think they're more likely to freeze out one of the Power Five, maybe not push them out, but at least freeze them out the way they kind of joke about the Pac-12 now than they are to let another league in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, listen, I, I think it's a great idea and I understand why the American does what it's trying to do. You know, they want to be included in that discussion. Um, I, I'm not sure if the, if the power five is, is ready to make that move. You know, I think there's been a lot of discussion, especially based on what's happened this year economically with the pandemic that, you know, that the power five conferences are more likely to, to form their own, you know, to split away and form their own governance you know, uh, body, you know what I mean, and, and deal with their own situation. Now, if that would happen, maybe they would reach out and add a couple schools here or there, but I'm not sure they're going to add a, a, another league to that mix. Again, 
when we get right down to it, it's all about money. And, and you know, you, you, you grab another league, you're going to have to find a way to split the money or, or find a way to make more money to, to make it evenly. And I'm just not sure if these conferences are ready to do that right now. So um, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough place to be in if you're the American because you are playing really well. You're doing the things you're supposed to be doing. You're, you're adding big games. You're trying to continue and do all the things and provide the things that the Power Five conferences are providing to their schools. But eventually at some point you're not getting paid the same money. And that's where I think they're, they're struggling at times, and some of their schools are trying to keep up with everyone. What's your evaluation of the four that got in? You know, I, I, I hate to say this. I thought that was probably where it was going to happen. Um, you know, I think the biggest knock was going to be Ohio State. You know, did Ohio State deserve to be in? You know, I think the committee proved right off early on that they thought Ohio, very highly of Ohio State and, and based on what they were able to do this season. Now, is that fair? Is it fair to a – Cincinnati that's nine and zero. Is it fair to you know Texas A and M that has one loss to a you know to a uh, you know Alabama team that's the number one team in the country? Probably not. I think that's a lot of the concern is you know how is it fair that they got in? Uh, they were conference champions and they, they they did look impressive in some of their wins, but outside of, of Northwestern, Indiana was their, their best win, and they really didn't play a tough schedule. And, and you know the Big Ten was down I think a lot this year. So um, I think this. This group and what the committee went through this year, I think, really showcased how there's definitely some deficiencies in the process. And the fact that maybe it's time to really start thinking about expanding the playoffs. I mean, four doesn't seem to be the right way now. And I think at some point we've got to either get it to six or eight. Now, the current contract doesn't go in until six more years. So it's going to have to take everyone stepping up to the plate to do this. And if the SEC and, and the Big Ten and the ACC aren't willing to do that, but I don't think it's going to happen until the contract ends. You know, I think there's two things. Number one, I don't think it will happen until the contract ends. And number two, uh, I think teams getting left out, because when you get branded that you are left out, it's such a scarlet letter. So I get why there's this discussion of, you know, what's fair, what's appropriate and all that. But if you go to what's competitive, I feel like no matter who they put in at number four, there's a pretty good chance Alabama runs them off the field. They've already destroyed A&M. Uh, Notre Dame did beat Clemson at home, but obviously Clemson was missing their quarterback. And they get Lawrence back, and they run Notre Dame off the field. Notre Dame's run, been run off the field a half dozen times over 20 years. I kind of think I'm going to see that one more time. And I think Cincinnati should be getting a shot and that they should be in. And at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if Alabama ran them off the field either. So to d- identify the national champion, four is enough. But when you identify four playoff teams, teams are feeling slighted. Even if they just got in, got beat, and were out right away, I think they prefer that as opposed to being dismissed and not even getting on the field. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a good point. I think the one thing that, that's also been brought up, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a true thing, is the fact that I think you're starting to lose the fan base. I think there are a lot of people – especially the last couple of years are, are tired of seeing the same four teams playing in, you know, in, in the, uh, the playoffs, you know, you think, I think there've been 11 teams in the last 28, you know, uh, you know, semifinal games and, and, you know, the same 11 teams. And it's, it's, it's after a while, it starts to wear on fans that you're seeing the Alabamas and, and the Clemson's and Ohio State. Now I, I get it. They're the best programs in the country and they deserve to be where they're at. Um, but at some point, I think the reason that, NCAA basketball, March Madness, is so appealing to people is because of the fact you get these different storylines. You get different teams. Maybe a team can make a run and all of a sudden find its way into the title game. Um, those are the things that appeal to the sports fan. And I think with college football, which has done a great job over the last decade or so to really increase its brand, 
you know, and, and, and get fan base going. Um, if you start to push some of those fans away because they feel like, well, there's no way you know, our team's going to be in it, and it's not as exciting to watch you know, a, a lower bowl game um, than it is a semifinal, I, I think then that's, that's got to be a concern. I mean, it's been addressed in the past. I know Alabama's uh, Nick Saban talked about his concern with the playoff would start to, you know, really pushing down the bowl games themselves. But I think it's true. Look at how much discussion we're, we're talking about on, on the semifinals. We've talked very little about as a 